Well, good morning. As Scott said, my name is Shane Seegers, and some of y'all are going, oh my goodness, who's that guy up there? Where's John Schmidt? Hey, shut the doors. I'm here today. My name's Shane Seegers. I'm the uh, multi-site director, and I'm so glad that I get to be here today. John is away because his oldest son uh, just got married, so he was able to do the ceremony for uh, Cameron, and uh, their whole family was getting together, so he texted me today, said things went great, and he's praying for me. So we're, all, we're covered, just so you know. John's praying for us today. Um, when you came in, you received a worship bulletin, and inside that worship bulletin is an outline of where we're going to be going today. We're going to be continuing on in our series, One Week That Changed the World, and today is a game changer. We're going to be talking about what happened on Thursday, and that changed everything. So when you, notice, when you look at your uh, outline, you know there's some, some blanks, and so we have ushers up front if you need a pen so you can fill in the blanks and follow, as you follow along with us, just raise your hand and the ushers uh, will give you a pen. I'd also like to say welcome to uh, our sites at Cloverdale, uh, Wetumpka, and Pike Road. They'll be worshiping with us today. How many of you know that as a church, we're more than just what goes on here? And we are a part of a movement. We're not just one church in many locations. We're part of a movement of what God is doing. We want to see what God is doing in centering people's lives spread throughout the whole world. And so what I'd want you to do, because the, the sites are always really aware, well aware of what's going on at, Pike, or at Prattville. What I'd like for you all to do is give them a round of applause. Let them know how much you appreciate them. I want them to hear it. And we've got to share the love. They're doing some good work out there, and they're so glad to be a part of what God is doing through Centerpoint as well. So we're glad you're worshiping with us today. Now, we're going to jump right on into to this sermon because, you know, this, like I said, this is a game changer. You know, this whole week changed everything. Nothing is the same because of Jesus' last week on earth before he, he died. And, you know, we saw it on Palm Sunday where Jesus changed everything by giving an unexpected invitation to a kingdom that they thought was going to be completely different. They thought it was going to be a kingdom that Jesus was going to come and it was going to be a military and a physical thing. And Jesus came and he said, yeah, it's a kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom. And I'm making that offering. Totally changed what people expect. Now, he will come as a ruling king, but he came first to offer us the invitation to be a part of that kingdom, something that people didn't expect. And so they thought, Oh, this is Zechariah fulfilled, coming in, riding in on a donkey's colt. And then the next day, you know, on Tuesday, John said, in times Tuesday, which is really not a thing, but he says it's a thing. But in times Tuesday, you know, where Jesus was on Mount Olives, and he was proclaimed, and, and so they would say, oh, no, this is Zechariah again. This is the Messiah on the Mount of Olives when the day of the Lord is going to be ushered in, the end times. And he gave a whole new meaning. Yes, it's going to happen, but not yet. And when you see it, this is what's going to happen. We talked about that. But can I just tell you, Thursday, what happened in the upper room changed everything. Because everything everyone for all time has known since the fall, since when Adam and Eve chose to sin, from then on, everybody's always tried to, to relate to God based on their performance. Well, from that time on, Everything that we know about how God is going to relate to us and how we're going to relate to him changes. And Jesus says what it's going to be. He makes it known on Thursday. How many of you growing up remember what uh, NBC called Thursday night TV? Y'all remember that? Must-see TV. Some of y'all young go, NBC, what's that? I don't even watch networks anymore. But when I was young, must-see TV was Thursday night. 
Well, can I just say something more must see than just whatever happened on TV? Must see is what happened on Thursday night in the upper room. So let's ask God to open our hearts to that. Lord Jesus, would you, know, would you move me out of the way? Would you speak uh, through me today? Would your message penetrate deep into our heart? Because God, I know what it's like to have grown up in church and to, to hear your truth over and over again and yet it never really fully penetrate. And I know what it's like to have ignorance and fear and guilt and shame be how I relate to you or how I try and not relate to you because of those things. And yet, God, what you talked about on Thursday night removed all of that. And Lord, there's people in this room right now who are struggling with that, and I pray that you would speak to them, that you would let them know you have something so much greater for them. And God, there's people that aren't in this room who need to know that truth. So it may become real in us so we can take this message of truth and hope and new life to people who just don't know how to relate to you because they think you don't love them and that you don't want them to come. I pray that you would show us this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Thursday night, let's look at point one in our outline. On Thursday before Easter, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. Now, the Passover is one of the celebrations that the Jewish people uh, were given by God to remember all the things that God had done for them. And so Jesus was going to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. So let's look in Luke chapter 22, uh, what it says. Now, the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. And when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. Now, can I just say a word of uh, of note here on this? I don't think it's so much that Jesus is eager about the suffering that he's about to endure on the cross. I think what he's really eager about is that the reality of what's going to come about because of his suffering is going to happen. And you know what? The Passover helps us to understand exactly what that is. And so Jesus was looking forward because he was going to say, what you've always thought about how God relates to you is completely different. I'm going to turn it upside down. And so uh, here's a note that God gave the Passover to the Jewish people so that they would remember that he delivered them from captivity in Egypt. So Exodus 12, uh, it, it reminds us what the Passover meal was all about. And it starts with, this is when it first happened. This is Moses talking to the leaders of the people of Israel. Now remember, they've been in captivity. They've been in bondage and slavery to the Egyptians for 400 years. And they've been crying out, God, would you save us? Because they know they can't save themselves. There was nothing they could do to change their condition. They finally got to the point where they said, God, you're going to have to save us. And they cried out, and God heard their prayer, and he sent them a deliverer. And so there became this contest between Pharaoh and God through Moses, doing all of these signs, these miracles, proving who God is and his power to deliver. And this is the last sign. And so Moses tells the elders, he says, Go and pick out a lamb or a young goat for each of your families. And slaughtered the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin. Then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. And then brush the hyssop across the top and the sides of the door frames of your houses. And no one may go out through the door until morning. 
For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and to strike you down. Remember these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. So what this is, is this is a reminder. God gave them this, this incredible display of his power to save, to deliver. And what he did was he, it came through a sacrifice of a goat and then that, or a, a lamb. And then that animal's blood was put to the door frames. And then when God came to kill the firstborn of all in the land, Egyptians and anybody who wasn't in a home covered with the blood. And when he saw the blood, the death angel would pass over. And the people were delivered. They were saved. And it got to the point where this was just too much. Finally, Pharaoh just said, go, go, leave. And the people left in a hurry. And of course, this was their deliverance. And the reason why this is so important is because we have to remember, salvation and deliverance always belongs to God. It wasn't something he told the people of Israel that they had to do in order to get their salvation by obeying or having a revolution or making themselves better. It was just simply trust. Trust me. And this is how you're going to show your trust. Do what I say. And here's, my, here's what I'm asking you to do. Take the blood of a lamb and put it on your door frames and let, let that sacrifice count for you. And that's why salvation has always come. And so the people of Israel, the Jews, they would have understood this. And God gave them this meal for every year to celebrate it so that they would remember and they wouldn't forget that it was God who delivered them from their bondage and their captivity. But it's better than that because now Jesus says, I'm going to do something completely different. I'm going to tell you that this is not just a meal to remind you what happened 1,500 years ago when God delivered our, our ancestors from captivity and slavery. This is a meal that I am giving new significance to. This is a meal that will remind you that God still delivers. God still slaves, saves, but he saves you. And he saves you through a, another sacrifice, and I am the sacrifice. And so, can you imagine this? The, one of the most important days of the people's lives. They've been celebrating this for 1,500 years. And Jesus sits down and says, yeah, you know that thing that you always do to remember what God did? I'm changing it. From now on, it's about me and what I'm doing for you. I don't know if you understand how significant that is, but that blows my mind. That is absolutely inconceivable for me to understand. It makes me think of C.S. Lewis. You know, C.S. Lewis said that he's tired of the nonsense of people saying that Jesus is just a good moral teacher. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard people say Jesus is just a good moral teacher? C.S. Lewis said, don't believe that nonsense because he never left that as an option for you to believe. Jesus is either the Lord God because the things that he says and the things that he does, no one else can do but God himself. Or he is a liar or a lunatic. And for someone to sit down at a table to celebrate a meal that God had given them to remember what God had done 1,500 years ago and to say, from now on, it's about me and what I'm going to do for all time. He is either a liar or a lunatic or he is Lord God. And I'll tell you what, in my life, I've seen him prove again and again that he is the Lord God. And so he gives new significance to the Passover by making the elements represent his body and blood. So they would have been very familiar with this meal and all the, the 
uh, elements of that meal and said, Jesus, he took the bread, and we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And y'all are familiar with this. He, he would take the bread, and he would say, this bread, they, it had no leaven in it because the point was they had to leave so quickly because of God's deliverance. They didn't even have time. But he said, no, from now on, this bread is my body. And the reason why it's no longer a sacrifice is because we don't need to make the sacrifice over and over again because it's been done once and for all time. I just want you to know, you're going to take this meal, and now what's important is the bread, and that's my body, and it's been broken for you. All the punishment that you deserve, all the wrath that you deserve, I'm going to take it. I'm going to bear it. I'm going to be broken in your place. And then it goes on to say, so he says, um, and they were eating. Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. God said that goat or that, that lamb and its blood that's been sacrificed for you, that's, that's me. I'm the sacrifice. And my blood will cover you. And I want you to know that Jesus gives us this meal to keep reminding ourselves, not of what he did thousands of years ago for the people of Israel, but he gives it for us because he says, I've done something far greater. I've made it possible for every person to be delivered, not just from the captivity of a human entity or country, but from your, from your sin and from the consequences of sin, death and separation from me. I paid it all. I've removed it. I've set you free. I've delivered you. I've saved you. I've rescued you. So the life application is that Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper so that we will remember that he delivered us from this captivity to sin and death. Paul illustrates this again in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians when he's writing to the Corinthian church, telling them about how they should take the Lord's suppers. And he says, hey, this is the body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And then he says in the same way, take the cup and drink. It's the blood that's been shed for you. Do this to remember me. I want you to know there's times in my life because my dad was a minister. I grew up in church, and I would look forward to the Lord's Supper. But it, it was just because it was, ooh, it was about the juice and the cracker. And then sometimes when I grew up, and I realized that, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but there were times it just became routine. It was just another element in the service. And I want you to know the application is that we should take it so that we might remember that you've been delivered and you've been saved from a greater enemy than just a country, but from our own sin and the consequences of that. Is that not good news? And so today we're going to be able to take that meal and we're going to remind ourselves of that. But I want you to know it doesn't stop there. That in itself would make Thursday just incredible. But Jesus did something even more amazing. He added the new covenant. Now remember, we talked about Everything that Jesus did, people would have seen as fulfillment of some prophecy in Scripture. When he came on Palm Sunday and when he was on Mount of Olives. Well, Thursday, when he talked about the new covenant, people would have said, Jeremiah 31. 
This is what we've been waiting for. Is this the time the new covenant's going to happen? And Jesus said, yes, this is the time the new covenant is going into effect. And I want you to know what the new covenant is. Because this changes how everyone relates to God. Because it's no longer based upon you, it's based upon God. So let's look at what it says. And point two is that Jesus instituted a new and better covenant with the Lord's Supper. A new and better covenant. Luke 22 tells us, The cup is the new covenant between God and His people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Now look at that. That's an agreement that God makes with you and He confirms it Himself. He's not waiting for our response. It's not determined or dependent upon us. It's dependent completely on God. He says, This is the cup of the new covenant between God and His people. An agreement confirmed with my blood and it's poured out as a sacrifice for you. But it's not just new, it's better. In Hebrews chapter 8, we learn a little bit more about how it's better. The writer writes, But now Jesus, our high priest, mediates for us a far better, would you circle the word better there, better covenant with God based on better, would you circle again better, promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people... Now, can I just say something there? The old covenant, which is really, you know, our Bible, covenant's the same word for testament. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. All it does is God didn't change. What changes between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Testament is not God. It's how He relates to people. That's all that changes. So people saying the Old Covenant, God was this mean God wanting to destroy everybody. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, this is a God of love. He's always been a God of love. But how we relate to Him changes. And in the Old Covenant, we found that God related to us based on our performance. And so He made a covenant. God and His standards and His commands, they were righteous and holy. They were not bad. They were not wrong. The problem was not with God. And it was not with what he asked of the people. The problem was with the people. That's what he says. God found fault with the people because they couldn't do it. How many of you have ever tried to obey every commandment? You can't do it. So can I just, how many of you have ever made a deal with God? You know, say, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. Anybody ever made those deals? Okay, there's some honest people and some liars in here because we've all done it. (laughs) But the fact is, is that when you make a deal with God, I just want you to don't do that. It's not because it's wrong. You don't have to do it. Because there's a better deal that God has anyways, and it's the deal that he made with you, and you can't add anything to it anyways. So don't try and say, God, if you do this, I'll do this, because you're just going to end up falling through on your end of the bargain anyways. Cling to what God has done for you. And that's why this is a new and better covenant based on better promises. And he can't find fault with it because it doesn't depend upon you. If God is perfect and faultless, guess what? This new covenant will be perfect and faultless because it's only dependent on him. And so he found fault with the people. And then he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. That old covenant, again, was based on, if you do this, then I will do this for you. That's the old covenant. He says, I'm not going to make another covenant like that. He goes, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. I gave them the if, but they never did it. 
So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant. Now, when he turned his back, he didn't turn his back on his people. He was still faithful and true to them. That's why he made a new covenant. He just realized that old covenant doesn't work. It needs to be done away. I'm going to turn my back on that covenant so I can make a new one. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. Now, what I want you to see, when Jesus tells them that this is the cup of the new covenant, they know what is about to be said. But I want you to know and to understand what's going to happen. Because if I would have understood these four promises early on in my Christian life, my life would have been different. It's been good. God's been great to me. But there's so many times I struggled with fear and guilt and shame because I didn't understand what God had done. And there are many of you here today, that's how you relate to God. Fear keeps you from coming to Him. Guilt keeps you from ever thinking that you can go to Him. Shame keeps you from ever trying to go back to Him because you failed. And some of us are just ignorant that God doesn't even play that game anymore. The only one still trying to earn their way into His presence is us. God said, I've thrown that all away. I've rolled out the red carpet. I've torn the veil. I'm inviting you in. Would you just come? And I believe right now, today, if you want to know these promises, they will change your life just like they changed mine. And I pray that you will ask God to not let any of these slip through your heart and mind today, but they will rest deep within so they can change you like it changed everyone who believes these. So the first promise in the new covenant that continues in Hebrews 8.10, God says, I'm not going to make a covenant like I did. Instead, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I'm not just going to write them on tablets of stone. I'm going to write them on their minds and on their hearts so they will think differently and so that they will want differently. Can you just put on the side the better promise is that God gives you a new heart. Listen to this. In Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 it says, I, God says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. How many of you, that is good news. How many of you know I can have a hard, stony, stubborn heart? But God, I want a tender, responsive heart. Can I just tell you, God says, I'll do it. That's a prayer I'm willing to answer. In fact, I've already done it. I will do it. I will give you a tender and responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. See, I understood that Jesus died for my sins when I was little. But the thing is that I missed out. I thought Jesus was only good. It was only real need, need, uh, need for me for the life to come. I needed Jesus to get into heaven. But everything before that depended upon me. Because I asked Jesus in my heart to forgive me of my sins so that when I died, I could spend eternity with him. And then, unfortunately, I was, said, I was given a list of rules on how to behave after that. Now that you've asked Jesus in your heart, just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Well, I want you to know, I couldn't fulfill those rules. I struggled, and I felt like I never measured up to what God says. And there's a lot of us in the church that we're afraid if we tell people that God has forgiven you and given you a new heart and we don't give them a list of rules that they'll go crazy and they'll just do whatever they want to do. And then we'll go, oh, there's no control in the church because now people are forgiven and they'll live for themselves. That is not what the new covenant says. That's why the first promise is I'll give you a new heart. You won't need my Ten Commandments written on stones because I'm going to put my spirit within you and give you a new mind and new desires. And so when people think, 
oh, if we tell people all that God's done, they're going to go crazy and just do whatever they want. You don't understand the new covenant. And God says, I'm going to give you a new heart, one that wants what I want, one that thinks the way that I think, and one that's tender and responsive to me. Philippians 2.13 says, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And you know what? I remember when this happened in my life. I remember the first time when it wasn't, I, I'm not going to do this because it's wrong and bad. It's because I don't want to do that because I want you more, God. And all of us can have that. Here's a second better promise. He goes on, because it doesn't just end with, I'll give you a new heart. Although he could have shut the, shut the book right there and that would have been enough. But he goes, no, there's more. I will be their God and they will be my people. Can you write down, here's the promise, unconditional acceptance. Remember that old, that old covenant was based on, if you do this, then I will do this. That's not how it is anymore. He doesn't say anything about if you do anything. He just says, I will be their God and they will be my people, period. End of story. Nothing anybody can do to change it. Nothing you can do to change it. And as much as Satan wants you to believe that that's not the case, the truth is, you're my people. That's what God says, and I'm your God. And it's because I want it that way. Listen to this, in the Old Covenant, Exodus 19.5, he says, Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant. See, there was a condition. Then you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me. He could have had anything, but he says, If you do this, you'll be mine. But listen to this, First Peter. Peter writes, he says, But you're not like that, for you are a chosen people. It wasn't based on what you've done. He chose you already. You are royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can now, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And once you had no identity as a people, and now you are God's people, once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. See, this new relationship, this new identity, it's not based upon anything you do. It's unconditional. It's based on what he does. You've received it if you believe in Jesus. This came true for me when I was a college student on a mission trip in Hawaii. Yes, I was suffering for Jesus in Hawaii on a mission trip. That's where I met Janelle. So, man, God just did a lot of great things. But on, on, on every Thursday night, we would do an outreach down on Waikiki Beach. And it was kind of a, a play. And there was singing and, and talking in between. And I was the MC, so I was directing through the things. And one of my parts was to go up there before a song. And I said, you know that a lot of us used to think God loves us if. And some of us used to th or think that God loves us because. But the truth is, God loves you anyhow. And you know, the more I said it, the more I believed it. And the more I believed it, the more real it became, and my life changed. Because for too long, I lived based on, if I do this, then God will love me. And it, because I do this, God will accept me. And God and his goodness broke through to me. And, it wasn't, and I realized it wasn't based on anything I did. It was based on God's will. It was based on his desire, on his choice. Is that good news? It gets better. <laughs> Promise three. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone. Can you underline that? For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already. You know what this promise is about? 
It's about a real and personal relationship. A real and personal relationship. Before Jesus made, introduced this new covenant, do you know how people related to God? They would go to the temple. And it had a system. And in this temple there were courts. And guess what? If you were a Gentile, meaning a non-Jew, you could only go so far. And if you were a female and Jewish, if you were a Gentile and Jew, or a Gentile and female, you could only stop at the Gentile court. But if you were Jewish and you're a woman, then you could only go a little bit further. And then if you were a male, you could go a little bit further. How does that make you feel, women? Okay? And then if you were a priest, you could go a little bit further than the Jewish men. But still, only one time a year could the high priest actually go into the presence of God. Only one time a year. And you know what? God said, that's not how it's going to be anymore. Nobody's going to have to relate to me through one other person. Your relationship's not based on John Schmidt or anyone else. Your relationship is real and personal because God wants to have it with you. The whole story of the Bible is how this relationship with God becomes more and more intimate and real. It starts off with the people of Israel. They had a tabernacle and a temple. And the temple was in the center, but nobody could get into it except the high priest. But then God says, you know what? I'm going to make it more intimate. And he says, I'm no longer going to stay in that temple. I'm going to take on flesh. And so in John, it says, Jesus tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And all of a sudden, God's intimacy was even greater because now he could walk around us and we could rub shoulders with him. But it didn't just stop there. We could touch him. He said, I'm actually going to live within you. And so what happened is this is a story of God being distant and far and removing every barrier and every obstacle so he could actually live within you so everyone could know him and relate to him. Is that not incredible? He's removed every obstacle and barrier. And so listen to these verses in Hebrews 10. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, no one would run fully into the presence of God. Even the high priest would have to tie a rope on his leg because if he went in there with a wrong motive or something, he'd drop dead and they'd have to pull him out. God says, you all come into the presence with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. 1 John 2, 27 says this, but you've received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. See, it's not just even in a temple someplace we have to go. He lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what He teaches is true. It is not a lie. Each and every one of us can hear God's voice. Because God, when you have a relationship with Him, He lives within you and He wants His way to be revealed to you. He gave you a heart so you'll want it. That's why we start with surrender when it comes to loving God more. Because we recognize we need Him. And we want to hear his truth. Better promise number four. And this is one that trips up so many of us in this room. He says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Completely forgiven. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. No longer counting people's sins against them. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You know, there's so many of us in here that when we sin, we just feel so dirty. We feel like we can't talk to God, we can't go to God. Some of us, 
we, we have so much sin, we don't even feel like we could ever enter into His presence anyways. You know, in the Old Covenant, they had something called the Day of Atonement, which is that one day a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would present the blood of the sacrifice, and he would go into the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And under the mercy seat were the Ten Commandments, the law. And the law revealed our sin, everything that we couldn't do. And one time a year, the high priest would put that blood and he would smear it on the mercy seat. So God, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, which rested above the mercy seat. Here's the picture. If this represents our sin, the blood would cover. So when God would look down on our sin, he couldn't see anything but the blood of the sacrifice. And it was covered. The only problem was it only covered it. Because the next day after the Day of Atonement, the sin was still there. And it would start counting up again till the next year. But can I tell you, the new covenant, God doesn't just say, I cover your sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he took away our sins. When God looks and he sees the blood of Christ, there's no sin to be looking at. He says he's no longer counting man's sins against them. I want you to know there's some of you in this room right now, you're relating to God based on your, your sin. And it's not that sin's not hurtful and it doesn't destroy relationship with God or fellowship with God. But the only person that's still hanging on to your sin as an encumbrance is you. God's removed it. He's taken it away. Some of you go, I don't know if I can believe that. He promised it. Listen to what it says because there's a life application. We must believe that Jesus' sacrifice fulfills God's promise, not our performance. How many of you, that's good news? How many of you have tried to get on the performance treadmill? You try harder and harder and harder, and then you fail. And you either have two options, get back on and try harder, or just say, God, I can't do it, and quit and walk away. And God said, I've never wanted you on the performance treadmill to begin with. I found fault with that. That's why I did away with it. I gave you a new covenant. Listen to what it says in Romans three twenty-two through 25. He says, we are made right. Look, you don't make yourself right. God makes you right. Salvation always belongs to God. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't say anything about your performance. Now, I'm saying your heart will change. You'll get a new heart. That will change your performance. But it's not based on that. It's based on what God does. He says, and this is true for everyone who believes. There's no alternative for other people. It's true for everyone who believes. Now, listen to this. No matter who we are, and you can put in parentheses, or what you've done. Because there's some of you in here who think, well... Yeah, but you don't know what I've done. Uh, well, God does. And that's why he says, for everyone has sinned. He knows what your sin is. And we all fall short of God's glorious standard. But he doesn't choose to hold on to that. Look, he says, yet God freely. That means no one compelled him. No one manipulated him. He chose to do this freely and graciously. He was joyful in doing it. Declare that we are righteous. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sins. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Is that not good news? I don't know about you, but for so long, if I would have known these promises, my way of relating to God would have been completely different. Because I let the fact that I couldn't keep the rules... And, and all of my acceptance was based on how well I performed. 
and that some people had a better relationship than I did and I could really only go to God when I was performing well. And then I was still holding on to the fact that, oh, I just fail and fail and God must, he forgives me and he says he loves me, but he really doesn't like me. And if I'd have known these truths of this new covenant, and that's what Jesus told his disciples, hey, the Passover, it's all new, it's about me, but it gets better than that because how you think you relate to me, I'm changing it. This is how I relate to you. Now, the band is going to come up and I'm going to have a word of prayer and turn this over to the site pastors. But we're going to do some real work here in business with God. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you continue to take these truths and make them real in our heart? God, would you make these promises not just something that we hope is true, but something that we know is true? And God, would they change the way we relate to you? Thank you for dying on the cross for us so that this might be possible. Thank you for setting us free from the captives of sin and death. But thank you for also giving us a new and better deal of how you're going to relate to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.